on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to a special edition podcast. Um, I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation on an extremely relevant situation. My first guest is Dr. Peter Mazzone, director of the lung cancer program in the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. And my next guest is Dr. Gerard Silvestri, President-Designate of the ACCP and the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Silvestri, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you guys are going to be discussing their article, um, along with other authors, The Components Necessary for High-Quality Lung Cancer Screening, the American College of Chest Physicians and American Thoracic Society Policy Statement. So start it off. Why did we need this policy? It's probably going to be obvious, but why don't we outline it for our listeners? Peter? Sure. Uh, A couple years back, the National Lung Screening Trial was published suggesting that uh, we can reduce the number of lung cancer deaths in a high-risk population. That's uh, led to a lot of excitement in the lung cancer community, but also some concern both uh, from lung cancer experts and from policymakers that rolling out lung cancer screening across the country um, may lead to different results than we saw in that well-controlled study. Uh, The benefits may be different, the harms may be magnified, and perhaps we would do more harm than good. So both the American College of Chest Physicians and the American Thoracic Society uh, got together uh, to put on paper a policy statement outlining various components that a high-quality lung cancer screening program should have in place in order to try and match the results of the National Lung Screening Trial and provide as much benefit with as little harm to our patients as possible when screening them for lung cancer. I would add, uh, Peter, that uh, that patients who were included in that trial, the reason this is so important is most of the patients were screened at uh, academic medical centers with combined thoracic oncology tumor boards that had a dedicated thoracic surgeon, had a dedicated chest radiologist, and a full care team uh, to provide care for the follow-up of those patients with diagnosed with pulmonary nodules. Just one example, in the National Lung Screening Trial, only 1% of the patients undergoing thoracic surgery uh, had a uh, fatal event, which is completely different than what you'd see in the general pulmonary literature, where you can see between 3 and 5% of patients undergoing a lobectomy for lung cancer uh, having uh, having a 30-day perioperative mortality rate. So for us, uh, we want to make sure that those those great numbers that we saw in the National Lung Screening Trial, a 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality, translated to communities which may or may not have those resources. So the idea was to set a framework then, uh, both from the perspective of the medical community, but even, um, I'm sure, in a way to sort of outline things from, uh, for both CMS and even third-party payers to say, look, this is what constitutes a good screening program that's going to get you, at least we think, outcomes similar to this study. Yeah, yes, I think and, that's and exactly right. Yeah, and in a second, I think Peter might go over some of those nine components. But I would say that, you know, we have the opportunity as opposed to uh, other screening programs that have been available for a long time to roll this out in a controlled setting uh, to maximize benefit before it escapes out uh, and uh, people are having screening done in the back of, of a mall in a trailer uh, with no <laughs> follow-up uh, ready for them. So so we, we really have the opportunity to control this on the front end and to really make sure we're, we're 
providing safe and effective screening rather than harming patients who may not have needed to be screened in the first place. So let's start to break down some of the components of the policy. Let's start by um, who should actually be screened and for how long. So if our listeners are starting to, you know, uh, they and the administration are saying, you know, hey, I should maybe do this lung cancer screening thing. Um, in reality, they need to obviously grab this policy and, and take it all of it to heart. And so let's start with the basics. Who should they actually be screening and, and for how long? I think that uh, that is one of the most uh, important of the components is who do we screen only a small portion of everyone who gets screened will, will have benefit from screening, whereas everyone who gets screened has a potential to experience some of the harms of screening. And so to strike the proper balance to make sure that uh, there are enough people benefiting for those being harmed, you have to enroll a high enough risk group, a group that has a high enough likelihood of developing lung cancer, um, that they will benefit from uh, the screening program. So uh, we reviewed the evidence, and the only uh, study that has shown a benefit is the National Lung Screening Trial. Their high-risk group included patients age 55 to 74 who had smoked at least 30 pack years and had been smokers within the last 15 years. There has been some modeling performed for the United States Preventative Services Task Force that suggested the best balance of benefits to harms could come from extending that upper age range up to 80. So based on that evidence and that evidence alone, our uh, policy statement used the USPSTF recommendation, age 55 to 80, 30 pack years plus, and have smoked within the past 15 years. In addition, someone has to be healthy enough that they could tolerate uh, treatment for an early cancer that's detected. So we've included in that recommendation uh, comments to be sure that your patient is well enough to benefit from finding out they have an early lung cancer. The same modeling suggested that the greatest benefit to harm balance would come from screening yearly and screening yearly all the way up to age 80 or until someone's become too sick to benefit from screening, uh, even if they're younger than age 80. I think that summarizes it. Gerard, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would add that we also said you should not screen outside that category, uh, and, and that's equally as important for two reasons. One, uh, one important paper informed us that even within the NLST, which showed a benefit for the whole group, uh, the, the, the two quintiles of risk at the highest end benefited the most with the least number of false positive scans and the lowest uh, quintile, you would have had to screen over 5,000 patients to avoid one lung cancer death with a lot of false positives. So outside of the trial, uh, younger patients, patients with a less smoking history, there's no evidence for benefit, but there certainly is evidence that they could be harmed. So we make the strong recommendation not to screen outside of the parameters set forth by the National Screening Trial and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. That's the data that you guys have there in Table 1. Yeah. Yes. So in other words, to put it another way, just because I've built a program, the worried well um, are not going to be getting screened. That's correct. That's correct. I, received, I received an email today from a physician who uh, has a family member uh, who's 46, never a smoker, who has one first-degree relative that had lung cancer who was, in fact, after investigating it further, a heavy smoker, should, should they be screened? And my answer was unequivocally no. Right. 
The policy statement also has just a comment or two in each of these components about, you know, looking forward to the future. And, and in the future, with, with more research, we may have different tools that allow us to identify those at highest risk and right. uh, improve our patient selection even further. But for now, based on current evidence, uh, the, the uh, statements that I've outlined are, are where we stand. Now, what about standards on how to actually do the CT scan? There's obviously some pretty wide variation across some current centers and, and how various people are defining what, quote, low dose is. And then ultimately, you know, a lot of CTs, that's a lot of data. How do we go about reporting this data in a way that, that you know, is reproducible so that when I get my follow-up scan because I've moved, uh, that, you know, the, the, the guy who read it here at my center can read it at your center and, and be very confident that we're speaking the same language? Yeah, those are also very important components. One of the potential harms from screening is uh, the radiation exposure that our patients receive, uh, not just from the initial screen, but from any follow-up scans they receive um, for nodules that are identified. Uh, that risk has been very difficult to define, but uh, we believe that it is a real risk, particularly for younger patients and, and women. So uh, we've relied on the guidance of our colleagues in lung cancer screening, the American College of Radiology, and they have a statement uh, in collaboration with the Society of Thoracic Radiology that outlines the parameters for a low-dose CT uh, to be performed. And so our, our statement suggests that places who are performing a lung cancer screening follow those technical specifications to ensure that they're having low-dose uh, CTs and that they track, that they document what the actual dose is for each of their patients to ensure uh, that they're meeting those technical specifications. Similarly, after that scan's done, we would like the results to be reported in a very standard fashion. Uh, structured reporting means uh, the report looks the same all the time, and its purposes would be to communicate results to the ordering provider, also to provide guidance about how to follow up on any findings uh, that, that need follow-up, particularly lung nodule management, and to say what, what is our threshold, what size nodule do we identify as being positive. At this time, there's not one structured report that has been proven to be superior to others, so we left it open that a uh, program needs a structured report that has all of those components, but it can be either their homegrown report or the uh, most commonly used one, most commonly available one called LungRADS, which was produced by the American College of Radiology. Which essentially is modeled after the mammography platform in the sense of the uh, keeping it standardized. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, that common taxonomy that's used in a structured report like that allows for um, data to be collected and shared amongst institutions and for us to to learn a little bit more um, to, to help with the next iteration of a statement like this. And what one thing I'd add is uh, one of the things we put in the, in the policy statement is that 90% of all people being screened, not just those uh, that would be covered by Medicare, which is where we initially presented uh, our findings to CMS, uh, would have to have that data kept and, and to, con you know, to maintain uh, a sort of accredited program, if you will, uh, you need to keep this data to 
you know, sort of prove that you're taking this registration and registry seriously so that patients don't fall through the cracks. The worst thing that could happen is someone gets a screen, the nodule is discovered and not followed up appropriately, and and the patient then uh, ends up several years later with an advanced cancer that could have been avoided with a, an appropriate infrastructure and program to have tracked that nodule. Exactly. I mean, it, it's not just an issue of ordering a CT scan. There's a, there's a, there's a lot that's in play here, and I think that's what you guys very much uh, have outlined in in this. Now, let's let's take it the next step because uh, again, as I was reading through the policy statement, uh, you know, it, it and I was before you got on the line and, and before we were recording, I was just talking uh, with with Peter just about the fact that one of the things I think that's so strong about this document. Is, is just how very clear and succinct it is. You know, here's the evidence for this. Here's why we think this has, has how it should be. Here's the recommendation. Next, you know, it's very clear and, and straightforward. And when I got to section seven in regards to smoking cessation, uh, I think that really uh, highlighted uh, again that you know we're all focusing on lung cancer screening, and, and why don't we work on primary lung cancer prevention at the same time, and that that better be an integral component of a active lung cancer screening program. Yeah, I, I would. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, I, I would say that smoking cessation is is critical. It's it's primary prevention, and uh, any program that we have needs to look at smoking cessation because even if you were to benefit from lung cancer screening, um, there are 11 other, at least 11 other cig, uh, cigarette-related cancers. There's heart right. disease. There's emphysema and COPD. And the idea that we can uh, that we can make a huge difference in, in these people's lives without at least attempting smoking cessation uh, is 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 simply crazy. And uh, you know, people have talked about this being a teachable moment, uh, and it might quite well be a teachable moment. But but if we don't have a platform for smoking cessation, we're we're really not going to benefit that many people uh, from the lung cancer standpoint. I fully agree. I think it would be a, a wrong message to be talking about screening without uh, including smoking cessation as a, a prominent component here. Uh, we can uh, reduce mortality from lung cancer much more by having everyone quit smoking than we can by screening. We can improve the cost effectiveness of screening programs by increasing rates of smoking cessation. Right. And so this, uh, we felt, was a very, very important component to include. And then um, talk about component eight in regards to education. You know, the, it, it does strike me like you know, you said from the very beginning, both of you have stated, and, and I think we all know this as in our professional capacity, but we don't, I think, always translate that very well down to our patients, and which is, you know, that for all the good that we think we're going to do with lung cancer screening, that we also have the real risk to do some real harm of finding, you know, benign processes that but scare us enough that we go forward with a biopsy, then there's a complication, and voila, you are now, you know, stuck with a complication for something you didn't even need. Um, and I don't think that's very well appreciated amongst the public, and I don't know if we as a profession translate that very well to our patients. Yeah, I think well, this is been, also, yeah, go ahead, also very, very important. Uh, you know, these are complex issues surrounding the benefits and harms and the right balance, and so we always say, well, this has to be a patient's decision based on uh, an understanding of these issues. Well, for the patients to understand and make value-based decision, the providers who are ordering the test need to understand these issues. And you may have a primary care provider who has 15 minutes with the patient and multiple other diseases to talk to them about. 
and uh, we want them to be able to outline what we're talking today about benefits and harms. So we felt it was very important that the program takes ownership of education, that they educate the providers who will be ordering the test, that they have a means to supplement the education the providers are um, giving to their patients so that the patients enter the test knowing the likelihood of a, a nodule, knowing what a nodule might mean, so they're not uh, distressed after finding out about that, and uh, so that the proper management of those nodules can occur. Uh, so we thought that this was a critical component to include in a high-quality screening program. But, Kyle, I, I would add something I think you've figured out on your own, which is I think physicians are not uh, really well-positioned to provide that balanced uh, approach. And, and, and studies that have looked at screening, it turns out that physicians are, in, in recorded interviews are much more likely to point out the positive benefits of screening without talking about the potential harms for screening. And right. patients are much more likely to want to be screened. And a, a terrific paper by uh, uh, Schwartz and colleagues in JAMA looked at 500 uh, people undergoing uh, that made undergo screening, and it turns out the vast majority thought uh, screening was always beneficial, um, had very little harm, uh, and even the ones who had had a false positive scan, 98% said they uh, had thought it was the scariest experience they ever had in, the, in their life, and yet 75% said they'd do it again in a minute. So uh, the public has completely bought into the idea of screening, and we, we aren't necessarily saying we're against that, but what we are saying is it's probably uh, uh, important to point out the benefits and the harms, particularly as you get up in age and uh, develop more comorbidities. Uh, so I, I think, you know, talking about harm is at least important, and patients should be aware of that as they're making their decision. No, and I was glad to see it as a, as a key component. Um, and then let, let's move in then to component nine, data collection. Uh, also very glad to see this as a, as a uh, policy statement that you know, it's not just about screening, but let's, let's actually do something about uh, all the information we're collecting. Yeah, we, we felt it was very important for a program to collect data on all of the other components we've discussed, not only to collect it, but to review it uh, periodically and come up with a plan on how to improve, and then ideally uh, to share that data um, at a, a national level, both so we can learn more about screening and how to uh, make it as effective as possible, but also so that uh, low-quality programs can be uh, coached or or you know, in some situations perhaps even put out of business so that we're not uh, hurting people and we don't uh, end up um, having lung cancer screening go away because uh, a few places aren't uh, aren't doing it uh, in a serious way. And in that same in that same vein, then let's talk about the the, uh, the key critical uh, importance. Uh, you know, we've we've alluded to it, but of having lung nodule management algorithms that, that and I think Gerard said at the beginning about having everything in place. Um, you know, this isn't just hey, I can scan you. It is all right. We have an integrated system with all the specialists involved, and when we find an abnormality on the CT scan, let us all upfront have essentially decided what is going to be our approach to this uh, for this patient, so that we have it. Institutionalized, if you will, so that, uh, that you know, if like George said, nothing falls through the cracks. I think. Yeah, it, I, 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 yes. go ahead. Go ahead. 
Uh, I would say that we, this this could be one of the most important components. Um, I, I think that we have the ability to follow good practice guidelines here. I think there's ample evidence, in fact, that the guidelines are not being followed for management of solitary pulmonary nodules. And I think having those components in place a priority would save some unnecessary testing. Remember, a quarter of the patients on average, a quarter are going to have a solitary pulmonary nodules. The vast majority of those are going to be benign. And so serial imaging is, is probably going to be the most common follow-up. So you want that serial imaging to be as, as least amount that you need and over the shortest period of time. And so that you know, means following, for example, Fleshner Society criteria, the practice guideline criteria for following these and not over-imaging someone and knowing when to stop doing those imaging tests. Conversely, if they look like they might have a cancer, getting right to the direct test that will both diagnose and stage them immediately would be important. And so following that algorithm of pretest probability for cancer uh, is incredibly important. And, and we think that the ACCP and the ATS and pulmonologists in general are positioned very well to do that as long as they're part of a multidisciplinary team. Yeah, I think, as, as Gerard had mentioned earlier, if, if the rate of biopsies for benign nodules was to go up or the complications from uh, non-surgical biopsies or, or surgeries for, for lung nodules, if the complication rates were to increase over what was reported, that right. would substantially swing the balance uh, towards harm. Um, separately and maybe different than we normally think about, rather than just doing all the testing right, there's a great opportunity to learn how to communicate properly with our patients. Um, there's a lot of distress in patients when they hear they have a lung nodule. They're screened because they're concerned, they have risk factors, and they hear they have a nodule, and uh, there's good evidence to suggest they think that means cancer no matter what. So uh, we, we have an opportunity to communicate properly with them before the scan and after the scan in order to minimize the, the distress that our patients will feel as well. Do you all envision um, being able to use the policy? Um, uh, because it's obviously uh, uh, with both the ACCP and the ATS signing on, um, you know, it clearly carries a, a weight behind it, um, that this would become the equivalent of being a, a certified center uh, or some, some, some level of designation to, to say that, you know, you should get screened here, not there, uh, because we follow these principles? Yeah, I, I'd like to answer that if you don't mind, Peter. First Please. of all, uh, first of all, uh, Kyle, I'd like to comment publicly about how uh, Peter led the effort to develop this policy infrastructure and, and really deserves much of the credit for the policy statement you see before you. Um, I would also add that the American Cancer Society has signed on to this policy. The American uh, policy in the American Society of Clinical Oncology, Preventive Oncology has signed on. So we have multiple stakeholders. Um, and I would add that for the first time in my 20-something year career, uh, we have a policy statement that honestly could shape policy. And when we met with CMS, a uh, group from the ACCP and, and the ATS led by the, the college, um, we were uh, able to show them this policy, and they were extremely interested in in seeing this policy in some way take shape, Much, much so much so that they asked us to... Uh, they asked us when it would be out in press so that they could point to it in a coverage statement were they to decide to cover uh, this uh, this as a covered benefit for Medicare beneficiaries. And right. so that 
policy statement and that coverage decision is going to come out uh, in the next several days. And once we hear about that decision, we'll know more and we'll see what they put in the written form of that decision. But if, for, if they do use this as a framework, we fully believe that uh, the, the chances of getting accredited and having a, a program will be based on many, if not all, the components of this policy statement. And I'm extremely proud on behalf of the college and the ATS uh, and Peter uh, for having this uh, and being part of this policy going forward. I, 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 I completely agree. I completely agree. What else should we talk about, gentlemen? What else should we talk about? I know that we've got some time limits for both of you guys. What uh, what have we not touched upon? I mean, obviously this was a what – what I'm struck by is the scope of the work and yet the speed of the work. So without a doubt, congratulations. Um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this is impressive. Um, uh, but what, what haven't we, we touched on? The, 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 like I said, you know, for, for any of our listeners who have not read it, read it yet, it is actually one of the clearest reads on a policy statement or any form of a guideline, et cetera, that you will ever read. Um, it's very clear and it's very well spelled out. Here's what you need to be doing if you're going to be doing lung cancer screening. Um, and, you know, personally, I, I, if you want my little vote, I'd, I'd love to see this essentially be adopted as, as policy of, hey, if this is, you want to run a lung cancer screening center and you want to bill for it, here's what's required. Yeah, that's certainly, certainly, our hope, <laughs> certainly our hope that, that this has that sort of impact on on policy, and then, you know, we'll be excited about the next step, and, and that is how to get uh, multiple societies uh, of different specialty organizations together um, to see lung cancer screening improve over time uh, to both track the development of these programs, but to also... Uh, adjust these policy statements as we gain more evidence to find ways to, to get more evidence and improve these programs. That's going to be very, very exciting, and we hope to be a big part of that moving forward. Yeah, the American Cancer Society has agreed to hold a sort of governance roundtable with the key stakeholder societies, and they've been doing that for colon cancer screening and breast cancer screening, and, and they've invited us to participate in that. The one area, Kyle, that I, I think we didn't speak about that, that we kind of talked around, but is the research component of this. I mean, yes, this is a yeah. policy statement, but the, the ability to collect massive amounts of data in real time, we, we're not going to be able to repeat the National Lung Screening Trial. That's never going to happen. 53,000 patients, uh, $250 million trial. But we have the ability now with registry data and uh, data in different sites, rural sites and urban sites and, and different socioeconomic uh, status. Uh, we do have we do have the ability to join together a bunch of uh, thoughtful researchers with this registry data and really make uh, make some headway on other questions that haven't been answered. Simple question like, what is the smallest cutoff for which we should consider a nodule positive? Is it really four millimeters? Could it be five millimeters? Could it be six millimeters? Is there a geographic difference? For example, if you're in the histo belt, maybe we call uh, a nodule different. Or uh, so. So I, I, I think we have the opportunity to extend our research programs to help better address. Uh, screening and its utility going forward. So that's the one thing I don't think we mentioned. It's not really clear in the policy statement, but it is a side effect and a benefit of the of the policy statement. 
Well, on, on each um, on each of the areas that are addressed, each component, you always talk about future research. So, you know, you're right. There's a there's a groundwork at, at being laid on each of the components to say, um, while you're doing this, we should all be thinking about the following. And then, of course, anything else that would come to mind. But you know, you're right. It's a it's a wealth of opportunity. We're never going to see that study again. But why don't we see something even bigger when we're implying when we're doing it in the real world? Agreed. Fully agree. Well, guys, this, uh, if there's anything else we're not missing, I want to be respectful of your time um, uh, and, and try to start to wrap it up, but I don't want to obviously cut something short if there's something else we should be addressing. But um, everybody who's listening to the podcast, uh, please, without a doubt, uh, go uh, read, uh, read this. There's a lot of work that was put into it, and it's actually uh, one of those things that I think that's going to set a stage very well for our, for our patients and help us to provide better care. Well, we appreciate you taking the time with us, Kyle, and uh, and uh, and we hope folks will will look at that article. Yeah, thanks for your attention to this. We really appreciate it. Absolutely.